You're listening to the Arise Bible Academy podcast. In this week's lesson, A New Commandment, the world to come is revealed to us in the Messiah. Philip Edwards will encourage us to receive him in his entirety. We hope you enjoyed today's teaching and please remember to head on over to ariseministry.org.uk where you can study our past modules, see our future modules and see the other ministries we have to offer. You can also now follow us on social media at Arise Ministry UK. And now over to Philip Edwards for today's teaching. Welcome to week two of our study in John's letter, his first letter of three that he wrote. Uh, And we're going to be looking uh, this evening at the subject of, uh, well, the new commandment and a number of other issues he brings up in in chapter two. Let's just pray together before we uh, turn to God's word to study it. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for your willingness to uh, send the Holy Spirit to energize our study and, uh, and the teaching, Lord. And we pray as we look at these uh, writings of John that you will um, open our eyes to the truth that he's trying to convey to us and it will mean something to us and uh, stir us and cause us to be passionate about your word and to fall in love with you even more. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, let me start then by... Um, reading this passage, we did a study last week on John, uh, 1 John 1, and we read the first couple of verses of chapter 2. It seemed to follow on into that. So we're going to read from, uh, in this first lesson, from verses 3 to 14 of chapter 2. It divides into two parts. The first part, he's, he's talking about a new commandment. We're thinking, what's this new commandment, we'll open up that idea. And then in the second part from 12 to 14, he's he's almost being poetical. It's written in in my Bible, it's written in poetry form and not prose form. So it's definitely a a poetry way of thing. I said last week that we consider Paul when he wrote as the legalist, the lawyer, so it all systematically sets out very careful. We don't see Paul uh, launching into poetry very often, okay, or uh, into prose, but John is the lover, and so he writes uh, much more in a relaxed, relational way. Uh, It's all about passion and from his heart, and uh, sometimes he repeats himself again and again, goes back, starts again, repeats himself. Uh, sometimes when you read this, uh, these letters of John, you think, oh, I've read this bit before. But no, he's simply repeating himself. Anyway, so let's read these verses together. The first part where he's teaching us about this new commandment and the second part, uh, he's, um, he's gone into some poetry, as it were. Verse 3. We know that we have come to know him if we obey his commands. The man who says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But if anyone obeys his word, God's love is truly made complete in him. This is how we know we are in him. 
whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus did. Dear friends, I am not writing you a new command, but an old one, which you have had since the beginning. The old command is the message that you have heard. Yet I am writing you a new command. First he says, I'm not writing you one. And then within the same paragraph, he says, I am writing you one. Yet I am writing you a new command. Its truth is seen in him and you because the darkness is passing and the true light is already shining. Anyone who claims to be in the light but hates his brother is still in the darkness. Whoever loves his brother lives in the light and there is nothing in him to make him stumble. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks around in the darkness. He does not know where he's going because the darkness has blinded him. And then I'm going to read this, as I said, this piece of poetry, as it were. He says, I write to you, dear children, because your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. I write to you, fathers, because you've known him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, dear children, because you have known the father. I write to you, fathers, because you've known him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God lives in you and you have overcome the evil one. Okay, what I want to do is attack the poetry first and then we'll go back and look at the, uh, the teaching on the new commandment. Sometimes when we sing hymns, if you remember singing hymns, I know we've moved forward, as it were, from uh, singing traditional hymns uh, in many churches. Uh, the hymn could often tell a story. From verse to verse, it's building, and we're almost on a journey with the writer of the hymn as he takes us through it. He, he deals with it like in linear fashion. The truth is, we all like stories. We like things that, are, that go from one sequence to the next. It builds and we follow it through. And when we get to the end, we feel like we've been on a bit of a journey. We've traveled through the thing. In some traditions of music, though, the things that we sing are deliberately repetitive. They criticise a lot of the modern songs in this way, saying we just keep repeating ourselves over and over and over again. There's no body in it. There's no substance in it. Well, they're just two different ways of worshipping God and praising God. The way of repeating is more of a meditative thing. Do you ever do this? Take a, a line or a phrase from scripture and say it and say it again, and say it again, and say it again, repeating it, so it sort of gets into you. It, it's not your reading through a passage, it sort of gets into you. And John is a bit like this, repeating himself and repeating himself. He uses the word love in this particular letter over 40 times. You think, really? Do you need to? But he loves it, he keeps going back and going back and going back and almost stating the same thing over and over again. Paul, as we said, he simply writes logically. 
step by step. John does this thing that is slightly different. I want to turn you to a couple of passages that use this repetitious form. Uh, you'll all know this one, Psalm 136. You say, oh, I get the idea of repeating now. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of gods. His love endures forever. Give thanks to the Lord of lords. His love endures forever. To him who alone does great wonders, his love endures forever. You get the idea of this poetic, repetitious writing. And of course, to, to, to gain the benefit, you're not trying to extract truth from this. You want it to sort of wash over you and affect you in a meditative way. And John writes a little bit about that. There's another one I want to show you. It's in uh, Revelation. And um, let's have a look. Uh, find it for you. Revelation 4, I think it is. Uh, this idea of just repeating and repeating until it gets on the inside of you. Uh, Revelation 4 and verse 8. He talks about seeing the seraphim or the cherubim. It said, The first living creature was like a lion, the second was like an ox, and the third had the face of a man, and the fourth was like a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under his wings. Day and night, they never stopped saying, day and night? What did they say? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Repeating it constantly, day and night before the throne. So that's this idea of this repetitious way of uh, sharing things. And John gives us an example of it here. With John, if we want to know things, we get a bit fed up with him. Come on, John, move on, please. Tell us the next thing that we want to know. We want to know the knowledge. Um, he does move on but slowly. In verses then, here, 12 to 14, John is mulling over what he's saying. It's as though he's looking at his audience and he has told them about this new commandment, which we're going to look at a little bit later, and then he's, he's, he's eyeing them up as children, young men and fathers. And he's, he's speaking to them uh, and, and just saying, I will explain all this to you. You will understand as you grow up, as it were. It's a meditation. A long, lingering gaze at his audience. A reflection on the way that God works in people's lives. How he works in children's lives. That's young Christians, new converts. How he works in young people's lives. Christians who are growing a little bit stronger, getting to grips with the word. And then how God works in adult lives. Moving them on in this idea of the new commandment 
which we're going to look at in a minute. In this idea of these three stages of life, it's a concept, an idea that's repeated many times in scriptures. This idea of growing up into God. Sometimes we, we discover something from, from God and we kick ourselves because we say, why didn't I know this before? Why didn't I realise this? How come it's taken me so long in my Christian life to now understand this? The truth is, we can't understand until we grow up in to that understanding. You can't jump from being a child to an adult father. It's not possible. You have to go through this adolescent period into young adulthood, into maturity, and then possibly into being a grandfather type person. And our Christian life is just the same. It's growing up in God and growing up in this walk of love that we've been drawn into. There are many pictures of it. We have to be careful though that we don't um, criticise ourselves that we don't know more or when new converts come to the church, they've been in the church a week or two and we start wondering why they haven't moved on. Why are they, and we could easily criticise new Christians. They take time, you know, to change, to, to grow up into the things of God. It takes many years. It's taken years for us to develop and to grow to where we are now in Christ. These pictures then, the tabernacle, the journey of moving into God, remember? We come into the outer courts. We understand little apart from Jesus on the cross into the holy place and we realise there is a Holy Spirit who is working with us. We didn't realise outside and then eventually we're led by the Father, uh, sorry, by Christ and the Spirit into the very presence of Almighty God. The life of Moses uh, in Egypt, in the desert, in the wilderness. The relationship of the Trinity the parable of the prodigal. We're a rebel. Then we're a religious person. But then we grow into fatherhood. This idea of growth, of development, is constantly there. So John's style in this letter is very repetitive. He keeps coming back to the same point and moves us on a little bit further. Now, Let's go back to these uh, verses, 3 to 11. We're dealing with uh, one of John's major themes in this particular chapter, the theme of God's commandments. We know that we have come to know him if we obey his commands. As soon as someone mentions commandments, we think of one thing. Moses, I presume you did. Uh, tablets of stone, what we can and can't do, the rules by which we should live by. We ask the question, John, why are you taking us back to the commandments? I spent all last week in chapter one showing you that we were free of the law. We've entered into this wonderful liberty and freedom of grace and the law is no longer there as a taskmaster over us. Why is John taking us back into the commandments? Uh, 
How should the Christians think of the commandments? Imagine you know nothing about the Bible. When someone comes to you and shares the Bible with you, he doesn't share with you the Ten Commandments, does he? You wouldn't start there. I mean, I sometimes started with creation and thought, oh, this is too long now. I've got too long a journey to bring them to Christ. You start with Christ. So when we come to Christ, it's only the people of Israel that started with the Ten Commandments. But we didn't start there. We started with Christ. And on finding Christ and the grace of God and the liberty and everything else, then on the journey we found out about these Ten Commandments later. So what, were, what are the Ten Commandments as far as Christians are concerned? How should we look at them? I'm going to suggest to you that the Ten Commandments were a signpost. It was pointing forward to something. The Ten Commandments were written in this way. One day, something will happen that we will live the way that God wanted us to live. Our lives will be full of love. And the result of this new life that is all about love, the overflow of this life will be the Ten Commandments. Poor Israel. They started with the Ten Commandments to try and enter into this new life. It was never going to work like that. It never was intended. The Ten Commandments was God saying, if you lived with the heart of love that I have for you, if you lived with that, these commandments, you would just keep them. You wouldn't have to think about keeping them. See, Jesus never thought about keeping the Ten Commandments. He just lived the life of love. And the life of love that he lived, he kept them all. And, and this is really how we should think about the Ten Commandments. Otherwise, we slip back into keeping rules and regulations. The only rule that we should have is that we love. Is this the new commandment that John is talking about? The commandment that we love. The Ten Commandments, then, they pointed to uh, a genuine, loving, fruitful life. What it would look like. It was a signpost. It's as though the Ten Commandments were a signpost pointing to Christ. It says in the New Testament, the laws were given to bring us to Christ. You go, what does that mean? They were pointing to him. And we, as we started with Christ, not with the Ten Commandments and embraced it, we see then that our life changes and we can keep the Ten Commandments. I said last week about this life that we're supposed to live. It's as though Jesus stepped out of time into our time and manifested for us this life, this new life that was ours. Remember, I made a lot of fuss about John saying, we've handled him and tasted him and touched him and walked with him. 
This is this new life that's come to meet us. The Ten Commandments were pointing then to this new life. And as I said, Jesus kept every one of the commandments of God, not because he tried hard to keep them, but he simply walked in the love of God. It, it is in Jesus we see the reality of the commandments. Living a life of love, we keep them all. Don't worry about trying to keep the commandments. Don't ever worry about it as Christians. The thing that you concentrate on is living a life of love, focusing on that. The commandments then given to Moses were an advanced sign of what was to come thousands of years later. But it was a sign. For John and for Paul, and definitely for Jesus himself, all, both, all three of them said this. It said the, the, the commandments are all summed up in one word that we love. This is the new commandment that John is talking about. The life of God's new age that is going to come, that we're going to step into, the eternal life, it will be a life of love. Have you ever thought of that in the life to come? We sort of experience, I don't want to turn love just into an emotion, but it is, isn't it? I mean, we can be in a situation with other Christian brothers and sisters, and we're in a meeting, and we can appreciate a tremendous anointing of love that comes upon us. It is almost like, this was it. It was like heaven on earth. And then we go the next week to the meeting, but it isn't there that week. Well, did we do anything wrong? Have we missed it? We had a foretaste, as it were, of heaven on earth. Sometimes in human relationships, um, people feel love for one another. It almost just, they don't feel it every minute of every day, but they experience something very precious between two people. It could be brother and sister, it could be mother and child, it could be uh, husband and wife. Uh, they feel something of this, and it's like, can we stay here forever? And the answer's no. We've got to step out of this. But what if heaven was this all the time? Was this love all the time? You go, it'd be a bit too much for me, really. I don't know if I could cope with it, actually. But, but I would suggest to you that is something of heaven. It is something that we've seen and touched and tasted. It was like John said, we were with Jesus. What was so wonderful about Jesus? Not his staring eyes that would have frightened you and uh, lit up what was wrong on the inside of you, but he just exuded love. Even if he told you off, you still felt loved. Whatever he did in his presence, somehow 
you felt it was so wonderful. No man ever spoke like this man. No man ever did the things that this man did. It says, with amazement, they said these things. He could come into a situation and this power of love that came from him changed the whole atmosphere of things. That's a foretaste of heaven, as it were. The Ten Commandments then was simply an overflow of what this life of love really is. Living in this atmosphere of love, of course we don't lie or steal or cheat or envy or think of worshipping anything else. We think of others. We're overwhelmed with generosity. Peace is just flowing around us because we're in this atmosphere of love. John saw this. That's why he bangs on about it so much. It's like if you want to read about love, read about John, because somehow he exudes this. He doesn't only just understand it, but somehow he lives in it. And he wants all his listeners to live as well. He has lived a long time. He perhaps met Jesus when he was, I don't know, a young man in his 20s. As he writes this, he's 80 years of age. He's developed in his life and he fully understands the meaning of the world to come and the importance and the significance of this life of love. It's this life of love that God intends should be in us and flow through us to touch other people. As I said, much of the rest of the letter is explaining about this love again and again, many times, 40 times I said, he repeats this word love again and again and again. First, John, when he's writing here, he links this command that he's talking about to what has gone before. In Israel, he says, this new commandment is actually the old commandment they had from the beginning. No, no, they had these ten commandments, how you were to behave yourself in the presence of God. No, he says, right from the start, because God cannot change, he is a God of love who reached out to those Old Testament saints and loved them as much as he loves us today. He knew that they didn't have the spirit within them to enable them to live as God wanted. And so he said, a time will come when things will change. And these Ten Commandments are a picture of what it will be like when you receive this thing. I feel sorry for them, don't you, in a way? Because all they had was the law. They were like said, this, these commandments is what you'll naturally do, but you can't do it. You can't do it until something else happens in the plan that I have. I'm so glad I live in the New Testament and not the Old. I'm so glad that the Holy Spirit has come and Christ has died 
And now this life of Christ has come into us. And so we can fulfill all of those Old Testament commandments because there is only one that we have to focus on and it's allowing this love of God to flow through our lives. If Moses had heard Jesus speaking, he would have said, that's it. That's the heart of what these commandments that I brought was all about. I believe he knew it, he understood it, he saw it, he spoke face to face with God. I believe Abraham understood this. They understood the love of God for his creation. John is saying, this commandment, though, is a new commandment in a particular sense. It's slightly old, but it's different. It is a gift from God. This commandment now to love is a gift from God. If you have received Christ, the personification, the person of love, if you have received him, you have received this new commandment in our hearts to love, to be able to love. Love is the word that best describes the life to come, the life of the new age. Do you ever contemplate the age to come? People go, no, I don't think about it much, often. It's just like the Bible says, it can never enter into our hearts and mind what it's all about, so don't really think about it much. But even if you just dwelt on the little bit that we knew, it's amazing, the world that he has prepared for us. Love is the word that best describes the life of God's new age, and now we get to taste it. We can practice it in this present age. We're not very good at it, are we? Or we get a hold of it for a minute and then it, 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 it gets pushed out somehow. But we taste something of it. It's not easy to love. It's not in this broken, fallen world and in our broken lives. Yes, he is putting us back together as children, as young men and women, as fathers and mothers. He's slowly putting us back together and each step of this being put back together is that the love is a deeper experience on a daily basis. Often in life it's so much easier to collapse back <laughs> into suspicion and hatred. Well, so that's a bit of a strong word, Phil. See, we're to walk in the light, not in the darkness. He says here, how can a man say, I love God and hate his brother? See, it's not such a strong word. 
Not to love your brother in the sight of God is to hate him. Go. Sounds strong. Not to love. Now we have received this new commandment. Now that Christ has come into us. Now the person of love that we have seen and handled, as it were, in a spiritual way, we can walk in the light. Let me read these couple of verses to you again here. Dear friends, I'm not writing you a new commandment, but the old one, which you have since the beginning. The old commandment is the message you have heard, yet I am writing you a new command. Its truth is seen in him and you. See, when I look at you, I see the love of God. It's in you. It's what makes you who you are. You are transformed by this new commandment. Its truth is seen in him and in you because the darkness is passing and the true light is already shining. What an encouraging word. John is saying, listen, you were horrible people, really uh, steeped in self, but since you've received the truth, this light, this new commandment of love has come into you, and you walk now in the light, in the love of God. You are doing it. We don't see it. But we see it in others, don't we? In other Christians? This is something then that God is already doing in us. Can I say the love that you have in you, and we'll look into this a little bit more later, is the only proof that you have that you're a Christian. You cannot prove that you're a Christian to me. You can't. It's impossible. The only way that you prove to me that you're a Christian is I see the love that's in you. Because this new commandment that you follow has transformed your life and caused you to walk in the light. That's how you know you're a Christian. Because of the transformation that's taken place on the inside of you. You can't prove it to me any other way. Because I feel, listen, I know how much love I have now, which I never had before. I've seen the transformation in my character. You might not have seen it, but I know. We'll talk about more about this uh, in the next lesson, as it were. Living this life of love is, is costly. It is difficult. It's not, it's not easy for one minute. When he speaks here in verses 13 and 14, talking about young men, I'll read to you what it says again. I write to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. Then he says again, I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God lives in you. Again, you have overcome the evil one. How, 
How have we overcome the evil one? How have we done this? By manifesting love in our lives. See, the devil would always have you operating in suspicion and hatred. Always. Always. But he's saying, listen, I've seen in you, I've seen you overcome that, that bitterness, that, that, that desire to be judgmental, that hatred that could easily manifest itself. As I look at you, I see that in you. You have become strong. The word of God has strengthened you. It's changed you on the inside. It's caused you to be people of the light, walking in the love of God. It's not see, easy to walk in this love. We have to overcome the evil one. It's not a cosy and an easy thing. God's kind of love is not easy at all. Sometimes you think, if, if they had done that to me a few years ago, I wouldn't be acting as I am today. You yourself can see the very change within yourself. That is the only proof you, you have that you're a Christian. There is no other proof. They can't prove it at all. The transformation that has taken place. This love that God has called us to, this new commandment, this receiving of Christ himself into us, us realising who he is has stepped into our life, he enables us to overcome the old enemy, that old enemy that would destroy us. And this love is shining out of a very dark backdrop behind us. Christians are lovely people, you know. Sometimes we can't see the wood from the trees. Sometimes we only focus on the negatives and we're losing sight of it. But if you read through history, transformation, changes that have taken place in society, in this nation and all over the world, who brought about these changes? Many times it was Christians. This love that they found for others, it was there. Summing up then, the Ten Commandments, they point us to the new life, as it were. A signpost that points us to Christ, who is the new life. We keep the Ten Commandments by keeping the one, allowing this life of love that we have seen and received to be the governing rule in our life. And the Ten Commandments are kept. Just as we develop through childhood and adolescence into adulthood, so this love develops within our lives. When we stand before Christ, what will we be judged on? Our faith, our hope and our love. And the greatest of these is our love. That's going to be the hallmark. Did you love? Did you love? That's just the be-all and end-all of it. Did we love? It's not easy, I said. It's costly and difficult. It's easy to slip back into suspicion and hatred. 
but in this new life that we have, we've tasted of it and we've started to practice it in preparation for the world to come. This was John's burning passion that people would see the transformation that could take place and had taken place in the lives of believers. Amen. Welcome back to uh, part two of this uh, second week dealing with John's first letter. I want to read to you now um, uh, 1 John 2, 15 to 19, and uh, he's warning, uh, warning to us about antichrists. Now it's antichrist, it's not antichrist, uh, but antichrist, people who are opposed uh, to the fact that Jesus is the Messiah and uh, what they were struggling with, particularly in that day, but we struggle with it a little bit today. So it's from verse 15. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, the cravings of sinful man, the lusts of his eyes, and the boasting of what he has and does comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but the man who does the will of God lives forever. Dear children, this is the last hour, and as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come. This is how we know it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they did not really belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. But their going showed that none of them belonged to us. But you have an anointing from the Holy One, and all of you know the truth. I do not write to you because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it, and because no lie comes from the truth. Who is the liar? It is the man who decide, desi, sorry, denies that Jesus is the Christ. Such a man is the Antichrist. He denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever acknowledges the Son has the Father also. See that what you have heard from the beginning remains in you. If it does, you also will remain in the Son and in the Father. And this is what he promised us, even eternal life. I am writing these things to you about those who are trying to lead you astray. As for you, the anointing that you received from him remains in you. And you do not need anyone to teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about all things, and as the anointing is real, not counterfeit, just as it has taught you, remaining him. This final little paragraph. And now, dear children, continue in him, so that when he appears, we may be confident and unashamed before him at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who does what is right has been born of him. Again, something of a challenging piece of scripture, so we'll slowly unpack it together. 
John introduces to us in this passage what is called the people of the lie. John is warning us about the dangers of believing people or the people who keep telling this one predominant lie. John puts his finger on what the lie is and warning those who accept it of its corrupting and dangerous influence. There is a lie that we must not believe. What is that lie? That Jesus is not the Messiah. That's the lie. Those who do not believe that lie, that's you and me, we don't believe that lie, we must trust in God's work in us. As I said in the first part, your life is the only real proof that you're a Christian, that you believe the truth. The love in your life and your changed character is the only proof that you're a Christian. There's nothing else to prove it. And for people who haven't changed and haven't got this love, they're not Christ's. They're not. This is the proof that we have. We can see the change within us. We can see the ability that we have to, to, to sustain attack, to sustain evil when it comes at us, to, to somehow feel I should hate this person, but I don't. We might say, well, we feel sorry for them. No, it's more than that. We actually love them. I want to talk about the Antichrist then. As I've introduced it in your notes, I've called him the Anti-Messiah, only because we've spoken a lot, or the church has spoken a lot about Antichrist. That's the Greek word for it, the Antichrist. The Hebrew would say the, the anti-Messiah. So um, who is the Antichrist? Is he a person? Is he a, an organisation? People have spoken about it much through history. We're not talking about him. John isn't talking about him here. He, he gives mention to him, but he's not. He's talking about these people who were around at the time that are anti the Messiah. There are people who do not believe that Jesus was, is the Messiah. And they're trying to convince others to come away from this lie. But they themselves are the people of the lie. Jesus warned us about these in Matthew 24. He said this, false messiahs would rise up after him and deceive many people perhaps even some from among his own followers. So this lie could so penetrate into people's hearts and minds that those that once followed Christ now longer, no longer believe he is the Messiah and they have been stolen away. Was it because of what happened to Jesus? So sudden, so dramatic the end. He was only with them a short while, wasn't he? Just three years. I mean, three years go so quickly. 
And all of a sudden, this one who they had seen and had great hope in is ripped away from them. What are they to believe now? Who are they to follow? Was that the first stage of something that God was doing? Would there be something else? At the time, there was a lot of argument. People suggesting the Messiah is over here. The Messiah is over there. Uh, This is what God is doing now. And at the time when John writes this, there is no difference between religion and politics. So the, the politicians are saying the Messiah is here or the religious people are saying, no, the Messiah is there. And so these were the people of the lie. The first century Christians were in turmoil. What are we to believe? What has happened? They must have wondered, would Christ appear again? The church was even saying, he'll come back shortly. So it was easy for people to feed on that misconception, the idea that Christ would come again. He would be there almost immediately. Should I go and run after this or run after that or or pursue this idea? John is trying to say, no, they're all liars. They're people of the lie. Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the sent one of God. He's fighting on behalf of that. They were saying, well, when Jesus was here, there were miracles and people were being healed and delivered and wonderful things were happening. Now Jesus has gone. That's all finished. It's almost trickled down to nothing. Just the odd person is healed now and again. It came with such a crash, such an explosion, such a time of wonder. But now it was no more. And the people of the lie were taking full advantage. It appears that even some of those that followed Jesus were turning back. They had followed him. They had believed he was the Messiah. They had been preaching about it. But now they were falling away. That's the problem that John is addressing. He is in no doubt. These movements are anti Messiah movements, movements against who the true Messiah was. John states, they may have started out, he says, within our fellowship, but they left because the heart of the matter was not in them. Sometimes there are people who are sitting next to us in church. The heart of the matter is not in them. It's not our job to judge these people, but it is a reality that some people have come and they've enjoyed what they've heard and said, but the heart of the matter is not in them. And so they drift away. They're looking for something else. They're looking for the truth. They've missed the truth. They've left us, he said, This, what he writes here, John, can sound dangerously like self-justification. Anyone who leaves us, by definition, is not one of us. Well, of course. People come and they say, well, they've gone. Oh, well, they were never Christians. That's what he's saying here. They were never one of us. 
But John is saying something more important than this. The true follower of Jesus, the Messiah, he says, has been anointed by the Holy Spirit. If you are a follower of Jesus, you have received the anointing. You have received something on the inside of you. It is the power of God. It is the anointing that has entered into you. It is that anointing that has created real change within you, that has made you the loving person that you are, that has caused a change that you can never go back to what you were before. You know that I don't believe it's possible for a Christian to lose their salvation. Once the anointing has come in us through faith in him and it starts a work of transformation on the inside, that work will continue and to continue as we cooperate with him. A real change takes place and something wonderful happens. One of the key symptoms of that change is precisely the recognition that Jesus is indeed the Messiah. He truly is the Son of God. See, if it's, if it's never been a problem to you, then you're thinking, why are you making such a point of it? As a minister in a church, sometimes I thought, are they saved? Are these people saved? Not, not that all of them weren't, but it's like, would you, how would you know? And if you're the shepherd, perhaps you should know which sheep are of the flock and which aren't. It seems to be something that John is really concerned about and maybe all pastors should be concerned so they should know their flock, be able to understand that they know that they have an anointing, that they can see the transformation that's taken place in their lives, that they really know that Christ is the Messiah, the one sent of God, the one who can transform lives. They're not hoping in something. It's real. It's an anointing on the inside of them. Those that were anti-Messianic, if I put it in that way, they denied that Jesus was the Messiah. If they did believe he was, they wouldn't have set up new movements. They were people of the lie. What is the greatest lie in the world? It's to deny the Father and the Son. To deny Jesus really is God's Son. To deny that Jesus is the Son of God, you can never reach God because the only way to God is through the Son. So to deny that Jesus is the Messiah is to cut you off from God completely. People have some weird ideas. God is in everything. God is in the trees and God is in people. What are you talking about? 
You need to embrace Jesus. And when you've embraced Jesus, he leads you to the Father. They said, show us the Father. That's all we need, they said, when Jesus was going to leave them. He said, if you've seen me, you will see the Father. I will lead you to the Father. I am a manifestation of him. But I tell you, if you put your faith in me, I will take you to the Father. One day Jesus will present you to his Father. That's the purpose of him saving us. The anti-Messianic people were saying, no, this is a lie. This Jesus you're talking about is not the Messiah. This confession that you're making about who he is, it's a lie. Jesus wasn't God's last word to mankind. There's something new. Come on, leave this Messiah Jesus thing and come with us so we can find the real truth. And some left because he wasn't there. The anointing wasn't in them. John is pleading for them. Don't do it, says John. Don't leave us. These people are deceiving you. He says, deep down, you know this because the anointing remains within you. So you don't need anyone from the outside to tell you differently. You know the truth on the inside of who Jesus Christ is. Deep down in here, you know that he is the only one who can take you to the Father. You know this. That's the anointing. John also is saying something slightly different. The word for anointing, you having the anointing, the root word is the same word for Messiah. That's what Messiah means, the anointed one. Jesus was the anointed one. He was God's anointed king who would be king of the whole world. The anti-Messiah people are the anti-anointed one people. You have the anointing. Can I put it this? It sounds silly. You've been messiahed. You know, well, that's a new one. That which Christ came as the anointed one, you see what's been imparted to you is the anointing. You have that anointing because you have put your faith in him. It's sealed. It's done. The deal is finished. This is who you are, the anointed one. So don't be deceived by their denials. They're not only denying that Jesus is the Messiah, they're denying everything that makes you who you are. To say Jesus is not the Messiah is to say that you haven't got an anointing in you, therefore you're not who you say you are. We are the anointed ones.
We've been messiahed. This is who you truly are as people. It separates us, doesn't it, from the rest of the world. Profoundly. That's why we feel awkward at times. We try as much as we can to fit into this world, but we're the anointed ones. We don't fit in. We don't fit in. It's a lie, John says. You mustn't listen to the lie. Don't listen to it. This passage is full of this stark warning of don't listen to the lie. It has a paragraph at the start and at the end of this particular part that we read. He tells us a couple of things. He says, we're not to love the world and we're to look for his appearing. We're not to love the world, but we're to look for his appearing. Both are an expectation of Christ's return to the earth. When he appears, he will transform creation, it says. This new world will come about. The ways of this present world will disappear. That's why we're commanded not to love this world. Don't love this world because it's going to finish. It won't be like this anymore. Renouncing the world, that's caused some problems in the church over the years. What does it mean to renounce the world? How does, how does he put it in that passage that we, we read? Excuse me. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For generations, the Western church has taught its people to have nothing to do with the world, to renounce it, to draw yourself away from it, have no communion with it. Did it really mean that? I remember my mother telling me a story. She grew up in Wales and there was obviously revivals in Wales and there was a great movement of the holiness movement and it was, it was so real on people that they should live holy lives. And she tells a story to me of uh, one minister who was walking down the road and he stopped to look over the fence at a football match that was going on in the field just for a minute and he lost his pastorate. They threw him out of the church because he looked over the fence at a game of football. See, he wasn't separating himself from the world. <laughs> you go, really? Would people think like that? Oh yes, don't go here, don't go there, don't touch this, have nothing to do with this at all. In any and every sense, my mother wasn't strict like that, or my father. But I look back now and I see something of the remnant of that in their thinking, to separate oneself completely from the world. It mustn't have any natural enjoyments or the pleasure of food and drink or, or anything of this created order. 
perhaps they think that the world, this world of space and time and matter is actually evil. That everything in this world is evil. Perhaps they think like that. Perhaps we should live as though we were pure spirits, never sinning, somehow floating around in this world as though we're totally detached from it and it somehow can have, you go, no, this isn't right. That's not, that's not what God has called us to. <laughs> John's not saying that either. When he says, don't involve yourself, he, he uses the term the world in the same way that Paul said about the flesh. Remember, he used the term the flesh re relating to the world, things that were carnal. And John uses the term the world. It doesn't mean we should withdraw from the world. Only the parts of the world that want to overthrow God. That's what we need to draw ourselves away from. We can enjoy everything that's enjoyable in this world. God has made a wonderful creation for us to enjoy. And we should enjoy it with thanksgiving. We call this dualism. The idea that only God is good and everything else in creation is bad. That's why people want to leave this world and go to heaven because everything here is bad. It's not. God is going to make a new one of these, I believe. It'll be very similar to what we have in time and space and matter. And I believe we live in this world. We're not escaping somewhere into the heavens and we'll float around like spirits somehow. I don't believe that or see that. This was part of the problem that people had in that day. They said, this Jesus cannot be God. God couldn't do that. God wouldn't demean himself by stepping into humanity. This can't be God. It's not possible. It's so degrading for the God of the universe to appear in human form, they said. That was part of their argument. No, he says, this is what God did. It's not the physical stuff of this world we're to steer clear of, but it's the rebels against God. Steer clear of those systems, he says. The world systems are seeking to pull you away. They're subtle. He talks about the cravings of the flesh, the lusts of the eye, the boasting of success in life itself. All of these things can become idols that we must have. We must possess them. It's idolatry. They demand more and more and more of our time. If you set your focus on something that is eating up your time more and more, stop, take stock and say, this is an idol in my life. It is robbing me of so much time that once I gave to God, but now I don't have this time anymore.
all idols, you see, will draw us off into the lie, as it were. We must celebrate the goodness of this world. God's goodness in creation. But we must never worship it. Be careful of the lie, he says. Stay faithful. Know that you have received an anointing within you that separates you, but at the same time, you're firmly placed in this earth which God has created, which he will make all things new one day. The anointed ones. Don't believe the lie, he says. Don't be pulled away. Sometimes I think of the Mormons or Jehovah's Witness or, or any other really religious group that makes inroads. It denies that Jesus is the Messiah. It denies that. That's the lie, he says. Don't buy into that lie. Thousands and hundreds of thousands of people do. They buy in to a lie that says Jesus is not the Messiah. We will not do that because the anointing is within us. Amen. You've been listening to the Arise Bible Academy podcast. We hope you enjoyed today's teaching and please remember to head on over to ariseministry.org.uk if you would like to partner with us by making a secure online donation. You can also now follow us on social media at Arise Ministry UK. Arise Ministry, a living legacy.